Hey guys, I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bonaparte Foodcast. All right, first, this week, Test Kitchen director Chris Morocco and senior food editor Molly Boz are on talking about a slew of recipes they developed for our March issue out now, all of which are built in a Dutch oven. Uh, these one-pot wonders are exactly the kind of, you know, why it's still winter? Weeknight cooking we are craving right this minute. And then, after that, we are airing two essays that were written and read for our live podcast in New York a few weeks back. First up is senior writer Alex Beggs with Soups Ranked. And then, contributing writer Priya Krishna reads Three Queens and a Snowstorm. All right, enjoy the show. All right, first question round or oval round almost always round like literally never oval, oval is really. so specific and also just not the right shape for a burner which is what they're used on and not the right shape for stirring you know repeatedly like making a risotto in an oval vessel is like punitive like back and forth back and forth and swishing and sloshing you and need the outside circular. edges don't get the same kind of heat as the center yep Tell me what you really think. That's how I feel. I feel <laughs> yeah, sorry, we took a little bit of a hard line on I, that. Well, <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm a little bit more even-handed than you guys. I enjoy the oval, and I think we mentioned this in our article in the magazine, just in terms of if you're roasting a large, like a leg of lamb sort of cut or a tied-up pork roast that is sort of more oblong in shape. That yes. The oval lends itself to that. Yes, but if you're going to get just one, one. it's going to be oval. Yep. It's well, going to be round. Molly, here's my next point. How many Dutch ovens do you have to Okay, have? let's talk about that. <laughs> so at home, I have a red oval Le Creuset, and then I have a gray round stove. I think we're supposed to pronounce it stove, right? Stove? I, I, was I was told it rhymes with robe. Who really? told you that? I think the I folks at Stobe. Oh, it's not Staub? Wow. Oh, okay. Emma, we're going to need to fact check this. Oh, God. But I don't want to say it's essential, but it's really nice to have two because there's definitely been times where I'm making like spaghetti, like sauce and meatballs in one, and then maybe I want to boil pasta in the other, or I've got a roast going. I've got short ribs in the oven, and then mm. I want to make mashed potatoes in another. Mm. Like having two, if you can swing it, or if you know when you get married and you register and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> definitely it comes in handy. And what I always say, like you will have those the rest of your life. For I sure. would say if you're going to invest in two, get two different sizes. Because you can do a lot of things in a like five and a half quart, and you can do a lot of things in a seven to eight quart. But sometimes there are some situations where one of them just better suits a specific size. And the seven and a half quarts can get like heavy, you know, like I with. I love that one. I know. I cook it's just everything like in the big one. You fill that thing up, and it's like forty-five it's pounds. It's very heavy. Yeah, those ones are really big, but you don't like a seven and a half. So a seven and a half quart, if you're at home listening, that's the size of what would like diameter wise. What are you saying? Well, I'd say that's like a a like thirteen. You know, no, then it's what? More than then what's inches. the twelve inch one? The uh, five and a half for me is maybe closer. Well, okay, so like maybe the seven and a half is closer to like fourteen. Yeah, you know, I think like so. oh, edge I, to okay. edge. I have the twelve inch wide one and then the ten inch wide one. Oh, so you know how you always develop. You don't have what about the really big one? No, I don't have that one. Okay. Oh, you don't have the, the really big one at home. Inch, yeah. No. Okay. But to me, that one is that's just 
unbelievably big. Yeah, it is. That is good. We're thoroughly confusing our listeners now. Yeah, That's totally. Good. Like, <laughs> if you're making a big, what's the Italian bread soup? Uh, oh, ribolita. Like, say you're making a big ribolita and you have like 12 friends coming over. Yeah. It's good to have like chili the for really a crowd. big one. Yeah. But again, if you're just making a pork roast, anyways. Okay, let's walk through some recipes and you guys can talk about the virtues and usages of a Dutch oven uh, in these recipes and, and anything that's unique to a Dutch oven and why we're using them here. We got five recipes in this story. I want to eat them. Well, I don't want to say I want. I want to eat maybe four of the five. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> oh Uh-oh. God, I I know exactly what's oh, coming no. my way. But let's start with this one. I loved one pot gingery chicken and rice with peanut sauce. I'm gonna guess that Chris developed this one. Wrong. Oh. He always guesses wrong when it's me and Andy, too. Don't worry. Um, (laughs) This is my recipe. This recipe was actually kind of loosely inspired by the chicken and rice dish at Nong's in Portland. Yeah, so the Hyundai's rice, of course, which is kind of the most... I I think I could eat that every day. Every day. So this is... So that dish in particular is pretty cumbersome and steppy and definitely not weeknightable, but this is sort of like the weeknight version of that. And the reason that we use a Dutch oven for this particular recipe is, one, it's great for searing chicken thighs. So doing the cold pan method, using a really heavy bottom pot, like a cast iron or a Dutch oven in this case. And the cold pan method being that you put the chicken thighs, bone-in chicken thighs, skin down, cold, and they slowly come to temperature and release their fat. Yeah, so they're rendering little by little and really evenly crisping up. And that's something that is much better achieved in a heavy-bottomed vessel, Mm. such as a Dutch oven. So that's how this recipe starts out. And then the chicken thighs get set aside, and you build this, like, fragrant, aromatic rice. And that has ginger and scallions and garlic and long grain rice in it and then the chicken thighs get nestled back into that rice and it gets covered and the whole thing steams together. Okay, what I'm concerned about is I feel like I would inevitably screw up the rice. That way I would like, it would be all like wet and soupy when I took it out or I don't know, like how do you get the rice right? There's a measured amount of liquid that goes into, of water that goes into the rice. So it was a tested recipe. So you're saying I should follow the recipe. Follow the recipe, number (laughs) one. Don't wing it. (laughs) <laughs> I will say that the higher quality your rice, the more successful this dish will be. But it, you can do it with just run-of-the-mill rice. But if you want super fluffy individual grains, get nice quality rice. Yeah, you, you guys recommend uh, high quali- highest quality basmati rice you can find. We recommend Dawat Brown. And I guess if you're like Andy Baragani, you rinse the rice a bunch of times before. I mean, you should definitely be rinsing yeah. your rice. Okay, well, I'm going to start rinsing my rice. You are have rinsing to. your rice. Because oh. part, of, part of us calling for that measured amount of water is taking into account the fact that your rice is now wet. And we have accounted for that moisture on your wet, you properly you, rinsed it's like, rice. Okay, so not only do you want me to follow the recipe, you want me to follow every step in the recipe. <laughs> okay, why don't we just close this magazine? <laughs> okay, so you got you put the chicken back in there, kind of nestles in with the rice. You get the liquid, top on, and it says it cooks for about... I think it's like 25 tw- minutes. 25 minutes. And already the chicken thighs are nicely browned and everything. When this was sort of set out, you just you walk by and you just smell it. And you're just like, whoa. It's very fragrant. Yep, totally. And the other crucial part of this recipe is that once that 25 minutes has elapsed, you don't remove the lid and you keep it covered for another 10 minutes. And that's the rice finishing to cook and steam through. I might, I might so screw another, that up also. Yeah, just read the recipe, really. And then there's a sauce. There is a sauce. super easy and also super delicious. Yeah, it's a gingery kind of like peanut butter 
sriracha sauce. It says peanut butter, soy sauce, vinegar, sriracha, ginger, honey, and half cup warm water. I mean, it couldn't be easier. It couldn't be tastier. Yeah. And then and some I, cukes. Uh, yeah. Some so crunchy you cukes. serve some raw cukes and cilantro in there. And I'm just like, want to get right in. Get in there. All right. I, you know what, Emma? I'm making that. I Maybe hmm, this next one, I feel like this one my wife would love. Because she loves clams. And I know Chris made this because Italian-American uh. guy Chris Morocco <laughs> made the clams arrabbiata. Yep. Well, oh, I was right. Okay. Yeah. No, totally. You nailed that one. Yeah, this is just, you know, again, like, you know, taking the idea of, like, well, how do you take the concept of a one-pot meal and how do you apply it to something, you know, like uh, – I love, um, you know, like Fra Diavolo, like, you know, with like lobster or clams, you know, seafood, um, when you have tomato, when you have chili, when you've got garlic, it's just all good things. And one thing that we wanted to go for here, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get away with it, was cooking the pasta actually in the pot that the clams cooked in. So it's literally all happening in one pot. I love making... Linguini vongole, and we've talked about this on the show before. Is this kind of like a vong, a kind of more of a tomatoey, spicy version of a vongole, essentially? Com- completely, yeah. This is like vongole, but with no white wine and just like tomato. And so, so you're rustic. You, you've got the cl- I also love doing clams in, again, like a heavy bottom Dutch oven because they're kind of clanking around and the, you don't want them too close. Like you don't want the bottom scorching on a thin bottom pan. Mm-hmm. I think that the Dutch oven is great for clams. Yeah, and it's supplying, you know, the Dutch oven is awesome and it applies to, you know, the the chicken and rice just as well. You know, you you start to get heat from the sides of the pot because the the cast iron that's, you know, underneath that enamel, it's really transferring heat, you know, to like all around your food, not just underneath. Um, So that is like massive implications for, you know, the evenness of cooking of rice or in this case, you know, your ability to like kind of get away with like cooking, you know, the pasta directly in this pot. Yeah, and also just getting the clams to open. You have that more all over heat instead of just on the bottom so that yep. coaxes them open so after they open you then take them out you take them out so that you can then stir in your pasta i, I love ditalini for this just because it's small and it kind of is very cooperative explain um, ditalini ditalini is like tiny tubes like little 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 tubes Quarter short tubes inch, like yeah basically yeah and so they're great because like the the liquid wants to go inside of them very easily uh, a longer tube pasta might have issues you know with like air pockets inside and and not cooked, uh, not be able to be cooked <laughs> as, as, uh, as, as efficiently, well, let's, evenly. Let's say you can't find ditalini at your local grocer. What would you? What else would you use in this recipe? Elbows would probably work just fine. You oh, know, okay, another yeah. like short little tube there, or even pastina. Yeah, have you ever seen the like the, oh, little, the little just balls. little yeah, or like or you know fregola? Israeli couscous fregola, or fregola. fregola ones that are usually toasted. Or right? hot take orzo. Oh, okay, not in you my guys. pot. Not in my pot. You put the orzo. You put the orzo with the peanut butter and the bananas, and just like throw them right out the window. I would just say in the '80s when I was growing up, Maxine Rappaport would like the orzo with like the butter and like whatever fresh herb she had, and you'd put that out there with some like (laughs) lamb chops or whatever. Could not get enough orzo. Doesn't Mm. sound too bad. All right, and it's all. It gets kind of like it. It kind of retains the pasta water slipperiness, you know. And they all so kind of oh, slippery. God, so good. Orzo. We bring back orzo. Can we bring bring back orzo? I'm, I've already brought it back. Right. I just made it last week. Okay, so you cook the pasta to al dente, put the yep. clams back in, and then just serve it right from the pot. How, what would you serve this with? Oh, just like like you know, big crusty chunks of bread. Dip, um, dip it in there. Dip it in there. Yeah, it's like it's it's pretty complete on its own because it has the pasta in there. But yeah, bread bread would not stink. Okay, Ma, I know this next one is you because I saw you testing it numerous times. And this this recipe 
super fragrant, but visually, it's just so stunning. The coconut cod chowder with seasoned oyster crackers in it. Almost like it's literally almost glowing. Yeah. And do you want to just for a moment point out to the readers what your favorite part of this recipe is? Oh, the little. Oh, oh, my God. I forgot about these. You have these seasoned, like hopped up oyster crackers that are insane. That have one ingredient on them. And Rappo told me that it's the best recipe I ever developed like was the oyster crackers. a little bit insulting. Made, like so rude. But they're so but good. We'll take Emma, it. did you have them? Oh, my God. Well, let's, let's just cut to the oyster crackers. What do you do? So right. you, get, you buy oyster crackers. <laughs> you buy store-bought oyster crackers. You melt a little bit of coconut oil or ghee or butter in a saucepan, coat them in the, the oyster crackers in them, toast them until they're golden brown, and they get covered in paprika and salt. Mm, so they're genius. just like extra buttery. Because the thing about oyster crackers is, yeah, they're delicious, but they're like not very well toasted. No. They could stand to be a bit more toasted. It's almost like when you toast some raw nuts and all of a sudden mm -hmm. they have like this You unlock, unlock yeah. everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. Forgot all about that. So talk to us about the chowder itself and what your inspo was for this dish. Originally, this was actually going to be a more classic, like New England style clam chowder. But we were like, that's been chowder. done. Chowder. Mm -hmm. um, that's been done. And what can we do? Like, how can we riff on that? Um, and so it has a lot of those same elements. It's a cod or any kind of whitefish chowder but it's cooked in coconut milk so that's where the like creamy element comes in um, and then it's spiced with ginger and turmeric and coriander and cardamom so it's sort of like somewhere between a curry and a chowder nostalgic but also like takes a left turn and it uh, it sort of emits this almost sort of neon yellow mm -hmm. it's, like yeah, so it's bright. A day glow yeah really cool and and i also love the fact that you've got the celery in there yeah, another thing that I freaking love. And you add that towards the end so it stays kind of crunchy, right? Yeah, the celery isn't a part of the like sweated out aromatics it's where not, you would normally a, see it's it. It's not in the mirepoix. It's not in the mirepoix. <laughs> it comes right at the end so that you still have like that crunchy sort of refreshing texture to it. One thing I find sometimes challenging as a home cook and then certainly any times I've had chowder, oftentimes the potatoes just get overcooked and they either mm -hmm. start to fall apart or like what's the right type of potato and when do you add it to sort of retain its integrity so this calls for baby yukon gold potatoes that we cut in half to cut down on how long it takes them to cook so the whole recipe is actually quite quick but you'll add the potatoes to the liquid to the coconut milk bring them up and by the time they come to a simmer they've already probably been cooking for like six or eight minutes and so then it only takes like another 10 or 12 for them to be really tender what you want to be sure of is that the coconut milk doesn't come to like a rapid boil you want to cook them gently just until they're tender enough to be pricked with a fork and nothing beyond that because they're going to stay in the chowder and you'll add to that a piece of flaky white fish which will cook for another four or five minutes and you're done and so as soon as the fish is flaky and tender it's done right it happens very quickly so you want you know the potatoes to be just almost there they carry over in the next couple of minutes and then the whole thing's done besides oyster crackers molly what would you serve this with any does it need anything else i mean again i would probably dunk bread in it mm -hmm. but i also feel like it's a pretty filling like one dish kind of a meal mm -hmm. i would make this for dinner and as long as there was some kind of starchy dunky crispy crunchy soggy soaker situation <laughs> whoa wow. oh my god that was <laughs> then a, you'd that be was fine <laughs> that's a lot of hyphen <laughs> all right you're, i'm totally sold on this one okay great 
Okay. Uh-oh. Here it comes. Squash au vin. Come on. That is so fun. So that is like I, the dude, definition of fun. Is it though? It is the is definition it? of fun. Squash and mushrooms in a pot is the definition of fun? Oh no, that name God, is the definition That name of fun. is the definition defi- <laughs> That name is the definition of fun. All right, Chris, sell us on this recipe. Okay, here here's my here's my way in. Okay, I feel like people cook vegetables in like stupid, boring ways and expect them to be delicious sometimes. Yeah. Okay, or they, or they they almost cook them those ways because they want them to be healthy. Healthy. And, yeah. So what if you took all of the flavors and all of the successive waves of flavor that you apply to you know protein let's say in cacovan you know like the kind of classic french you know stewed rooster or chicken and like red wine like tons of richness you know all of you know onion you know maybe there's mushroom um wine wine uh, yeah totally so what if you applied all of that tlc to squash because mm. like squash isn't gonna be just delicious right out of the gate especially just kind of stewed in a soup you need flavor so we kind of gave the the um you know the kind of cacovan treatment to Say squash cacovan or cocovan 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 but like i don't know i mean <laughs> sure <laughs> Thanks for harping on I'm that. like, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> if you're going to like pronounce it as an American, you're like, Caco Van, you know? Yeah. We're browning off mushrooms in lots of olive oil. We are, you know, sweating out lots of aromatics like onion and shallot. Um, we then have, you know, dry white wine going in there. So we have like a lot of brightness and acidity. Um, there's then farro. So there's a little bit of heft to this dish. So it's kind of complete on its own. There is miso for umami and a little bit of extra body in the liquid and then yes there is squash kind of dropped into that already delicious very fragrant mixture and kind of you know half steamed half kind of you know simmered until tenderness and you know kind of creamy and creaminess ensues so that's my elevator pitch for for squash van you did a pretty good job selling that i will say uh, i it looks delicious. I, I do like that notion of getting the miso and browning the mushrooms to sort of impart a meatiness, roastiness to mm-hmm. it. And you've got the garlic and the shallots and the and, wine. And frankly, butter too. Butter, you know, yeah. Butter, like, you know, like one way to make your soups and your like vegetable soups more delicious, unless you're vegan, just like put some butter in it. I never do that. I had I had an issue. You start in them. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I had an issue a few months ago. I made a vegetable curry recipe that was not from Bon Appetit. Mm. Mistake. But you know why? There's not a vegetable curry, straight up vegetable curry recipe on BA, I don't think. Uh. Anyways, I used someone else's. I'm not going to mention his name. Maybe I bought the, a different type of squash, but like as it was cooking, cooking, that the squash almost sort of disintegrated uh. and fell uh. apart. Uh-huh. And what I like about this photo is that it each type of squash really holds its shape. And is there a way to sort of ensure cooking times from one squash to another, or are there certain squashes that lend themselves better to souping instead of roasting? Yeah, so I really like the kind of combination of kabocha and delicata for this, because both of them, you can just leave the skin on. And even if you don't want to eat the skin, you can just kind of scoop the flesh out, mm-hmm. you know, when you're kind of eating it from your bowl. But leaving the skin on just keeps those pieces intact. And for me, kabocha does not want to be roasted. It's such a dense meaty and frankly starchy squash when you roast it you just kind of accentuate that kind of dry texture when you cook it you know like in a liquid then it kind of keeps that kind of creaminess to it so it this is not going to kind of break down on you and disintegrate the way 
you know, God, like God help me, like spaghetti squash or even like acorn squash, butternut squash can kind of go either way. It'll sort of hold its shape up to a point, you know, and then just like give it up. Visually, I really like the skin on because you get that nice golden yellow and the sort of forest green and just Mm -hmm. adds a nice pop of color. What about 898? Ooh, for sure. Okay, yeah. Okay, how excessive, how available is the 898 squash these days you know unclear unclear about 898 <laughs> but honey nut you know it's kind of predecessor the honey nut yeah. you know like that little butternut kind of looking guy those you're you're seeing around at farmers markets yeah. regularly and these are sort of advanced hybrid squashes squashes squash sort of um uh developed by uh, dan barber and company mm-hmm. up at blue hill keep an eye out for them um before we get to the last recipe your guys thoughts on the interior of a Dutch oven comparing stove to Le Creuset, and do you have a preference? Uh, uh, it's so personal. It's tricky too. With, with stove, you uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but with stove, you always get a black enameled interior, always. and with yes. Creuset, you basically always get a white enameled interior. Well, no, but stove is more cast iron like. I mean, it's it, like, it's still it's it's, a, it's a black enamel on top of the cast iron, so it's not raw cast iron in there, mm-hmm. but okay. it's made to look almost as though it were cast iron. It has more of a texture, mm-hmm. whereas the Creuset is really Usually glossy and glassy. smooth. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's a smoother surface. I kind of think easier to clean. The Creuset? The Creuset, yeah. But it's light colored, so the stains show a lot. It patinas yeah. like crazy, crazy over time. Crazy. Which is kind of cool, actually. That's part of the charm actually. of yeah. it. But like, I like that the all of my stoves are very still very sleek looking and clean. Yeah. Even after so Barely many Barely aged, yep. Can I make one, one piece of advice, if I may, uh, having used Dutch ovens a lot over the years? If whenever you're like browning something, so whether you're browning short ribs or trying to bring color to vegetables and you and you notice on the bottom of a cruset because it's white if it's getting kind of like too dark it's like it's never bad to add a little water or a splash of wine to something just to loosen up that sort mm-hmm. of those impediments and just get a little bit sort of caramelization going mm-hmm. um and i don't know if we always mention that in recipes but i always think like yeah you can always add a little liquid Right, to deglaze it. Or on the flip side, add like a glug of olive oil if it feels like it's dry Mm. and it's like Like sticking and charring as opposed to just like the caramelization showing up. And certain things like mushrooms just soak up so much olive oil, all of a sudden the pan's dry. You're like, wait, what? Are you ready, Molly? Fine. I mean, I don't really want to do this because I feel like you're about to tear me apart, but sure. You ready for kielbasa lay? I'm ready. (laughs) You gotta back me up, Chris. Oh, I'm I'm right here on your wing. <laughs> All right, so talk to us about kielbasa, lentil kielbasa lay, Molly. All right, well, a few things here to note. One, kielbasa. So, like already, we love mm-hmm. this win. recipe. Big win. Two, <laughs> what the point of this recipe was to take a fresh look at cassoulet and figure out a way to make it a little bit easier, a little bit less time consuming, a few less pots, a few less cuts of meat. And I do think that's what we've achieved here. I mean, I think we all love authentic cassoulet, but it's like a project. You're confident the duck. You're getting a certain process. type of sausage mm-hmm. from south of France. You're getting yeah. like the right the tarbay beans, and you're cooking this and that. And you're layering, and it's like, yeah, it's a it's an investment of time and effort. So, I love lentils, and decided to look to lentils as the sort of like legumey heart and soul of this dish, as opposed to a bean, because you can cook them from dried without having to soak and prepare overnight and cook them separately. So this is a way to 
cook all of those ingredients together at the same time and they therefore sort of like impart all of their deliciousness to one another and spend a good amount of time together in the oven. If I may, I, I do like that note of this is something you can decide to make today for tonight. Like you don't have to soak the beans overnight. Smoke, smoke kielbasa is very accessible. Right. Like everything you can grab and this is like a make that night sort of dish. Do you want to talk about the reason you don't like it? I think it's worth bringing up, yeah. Okay, well, why don't I just speak for you? Adam has an issue with smoked paprika for whatever reason. That's what the issue is? He thinks it's like the liquid smoke of the spice cabinet. I understand where you're coming from, and I think it needs to be used judiciously. But I think in something like this, where there's also mushrooms, and it's a very hearty stew, it can take a lot of flavor, and I think that it benefits from the like smoky depth of flavor that paprika gives you, where there's no bacon here. I, I think I've developed maybe four veggie burgers, you know, and I think I've used smoked paprika in at least three, if not four, out of four of those, because it just it adds something, you know, meaty and rich and very savory and deep, you know, to whatever it touches, and it can be completely overused. And it got so big, like kind of eight or nine years ago, it was like smoked paprika. Right. It was like smoked paprika vinaigrette, you know, smoked paprika just freaking. Never dusted wanted on in a salad. No, Ever. no, not at all. Okay, so if I may, sure. Um, I hear what you're saying about the veggie burgers, uh, Chris. My issue is, well, first of all, you already have smoked kielbasa mm-hmm. in the cassoulet. That already brings the meatiness and like the, the smokiness and the sort of barbecueiness. Yeah, but why do you to get to decide pot? that it brings enough? Second of all, you were talking about how you've got the you said mushrooms in there, you've got garlic in there, you've got so much happening already. Then you add this smoked paprika, and when it was in the oven, all I was smelling was the smoked paprika. I'm like, I want to smoke, I want to smell the kibasa, I want to smell the mushrooms, I want to smell the garlic. Why do we need to add this on top when you have so much goodness already going on in there? I, I don't know what to say. I just, I tried it both ways. I added smoked paprika because I felt like it needed a little bit more depth of flavor, and that's what the smoked paprika brought. And it got tasted, tested, and approved in the Bon Appetit test kitchen. Well, approved by some people. <laughs> so now that no one's ever going to make this dish. Well, you can make it. I, I, I think it's, it's got everything you want in it. I just would, I would have, if this were my recipe, I would have done, I would have said uh, one and one quarter teaspoon hot smoked Spanish paprika, parentheses, optional. optional. Well, why didn't you say that in the edit? When you were reading over this recipe. Because you guys were like poo-pooing me and you were like, you don't know what you're talking about. You were embarrassed. I, I was voted down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I'm, this is a, this is, I love this story. Um, you guys have up the recipes. Jesse Sparks wrote it up. It is five recipes, all in Dutch ovens. And it's kind of exactly what you want to be eating this time of year when it's like 38 degrees out and drizzly and just Every cold day. and gray. Totally. Yep. I would eat any of these tonight, um, gladly. So you can find the article Going Dutch in the March issue of Bon Appetit on Sands Now, or you can check them out on bonappetit.com. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Number 16. Do you like making eye contact with a coworker in the bathroom mirror and then rushing into a stall to rip a huge fart? No. No. I admit it was a little cheap to start with a fart joke, but you can't have that kind of tension in the workplace. Cabbage soup, a laxative by any other name, you're on the bottom rung. (laughs) Fifteen. 
Sometimes the soup teeters too close to the line between being a soup and being a pasta sauce. You know what would make those soups better? Noodles. I'm talking about tomato soup. Ooh, what are these little bumpy bites I'm getting? So much tomato. Why are we pretending to like whatever dried oregano tastes like? Where's the spaghetti? This soup is a scam invented during the spaghetti depression and I'm not buying it. Bad soup. <laughs> 14. Contrary to popular belief, the phrase I creamed myself does not refer to a weird rash you got from bathing in cream of mushroom soup. Apparently this is a soup people eat, perhaps mistaking it for watery gravy, and we really can't have that. 13. No soup thinks more highly of itself than Manhattan clam chowder. Your property value isn't higher because you swapped heavy cream for low-cal tomato juice, and I don't care how historically accurate it is. Sticking leeches on your butt cheeks is historically accurate. That doesn't mean I want to do it. Manhattan clam chowder needs to go back to wherever it came from, which is probably Connecticut. Uh, I just want to take a quick pause to say bone broth is not a soup. 11. The following soups only seem like a good idea when I'm in a midtown hail and hearty lentil, seven bean, mushroom barley. In every other situation, they're undesirable. There's a reason you don't start a $300 dinner at Le Cuckoo with a pebbly bowl of mushroom barley. It's edible, it's nutritious, but it's undesirable, like a Woody Allen movie in 2020. <laughs> speaking of, speaking of soggy noodles, chicken noodle is a dumb soup. Just roast a chicken and eat that. Make some buttered noodles instead. The chicken's dried out and bland. The noodles are mushy. The carrot coins are trying to choke and murder me. There's no redeeming ingredient here. I know Molly just developed a actually good chicken noodle soup recipe for Basically, which you can find at eatbasically.com. But between you and me, that was for SEO because you guys still want to make this soup and I'm not stopping you. Nine. You can... <laughs> You can whine and fine dine me and I'll probably perceive lobster bisque as a good soup until I step back and look at it objectively. You got your hands on some sweet and tender and expensive lobster meat and you want to overcook it in hot cream. And I certainly don't want to drink it from shooters at your show-offy wedding receptions. This is why you're in credit card debt, Stacy. Hey. Okay. There was a lot of negativity, and some of it I met with all of my heart, but my heart is big and can hold a lot, like a huge stockpot of gumbo. Oh, you don't like slimy okra surprises? I do not care. This is a variety pack of soup. Tiny bouncy shrimp, spicy spices, rice joins the party, and Dewey floats by. Man can, in fact, live on gumbo alone. Just ask my 90-year-old grandpa Jim, who's been making it every week since the Dust Bowl, still kicking. Seven. The following green soups are bad. Celery, asparagus, chilled cucumber. The following green soup is good. Split pea. We can forgive its mushiness because this is an entire soup that revolves around the making of a ham. You have to have cooked an entire ham to make split pea soup, and ham is one of the greatest foods. Then you get little flecks of ham in the soup to remind you of how wonderful life was a few days ago when you had even more ham. <sighs> Six, <laughs> my heart goes a flutter for Tom Cuss soup, the spicy sour Thai coconut milk and chicken soup that has no flaws whatsoever. It doesn't coddle you with pure creamy coconut milk. Drop some Thai chilies in the bowl to wake you the hell up. Great soup. Five, when my face is directly over a steaming basin of pho, my glasses are fogging up my 
pores are opening. Sometimes I get so distracted by temporary blindness, I forget about the soup beneath. Then you get to start playing with it. Squeeze the lime here, extra fish sauce there. I like to drop the bean sprouts in one sprout at a time, saying, now your turn. And unlike <laughs> other soups mentioned earlier, you get your noodles. Four. This opinion does not reflect the rest of the Bon Appetit staff. Gazpacho is a good soup. Yes, it's cold and chunky and in the wrong bowl. Might be mistaken for salsa, but I like it. Tangy tomatoes all mushed up, a puddle, a puddle of olive oil on top, croutons. Drinking it makes me feel like Daisy Buchanan in that scene in The Great Gatsby where everybody's hot and sweaty and rich. Remember, remember that? An entire chapter describes this lady fanning herself on a couch. I bet she'd love a bowl of gazpacho. Three. Pozole, a soup that's literally thousands of years old and still very much bangs. The Aztecs, the Aztecs made pozole on special occasions, which in their case involved human sacrifices, but for you could be the Super Bowl. This pork and hominy soup is inherently rich and filling, and then you get the toppings, chicharrones, tostadas, avocado. How could you get bored in a, word, in a world with pozole in it? Two, this one has some conditionals. Borscht has to be eaten at a Russian diner, slippery pierogies, and a side of kielbasa need to be on the table, and you need to be wearing a white t-shirt. There is no greater flex. Please don't tell me there's cabbage in it. I don't want to know. One. <laughs> By now, you've probably deemed everything I've said a lie, which is fine. Um, but when you tuck yourself into bed tonight under a duvet you saw on a subway ad, think about how you're recreating what it means to be French onion soup. The best soup. Some French chef or a rat under one's hat was like, what if we made like a pot pie with a cheese crust instead of dough? We chef, brilliant idea, little rat. And underneath, a pile of caramelized onions and beef stock and a sunken island of bread, not much else. Wow. Hell of a soup. Let's follow that up with steak frites, too much wine, tart to ten, and then go to bed and die happy. And here is Priya Krishna with her essay, Three Queens in a Snowstorm. It was January 2015, and New York was facing one of the biggest snowstorms ever to hit the city. The news warned of 50 mile an hour winds, three feet of snow, falling ice shards. Subways were shut down. De Blasio issued a warning for people not to leave their homes. I watched the news from my apartment in the East Village, brimming with excitement. I was 23, living with two of my best friends, Lauren and Kate, we were in one of those places that was objectively dank, but after looking at like 40 apartments and being forced to compromise on things like closets and a stovetop where all four burners work, it felt like the best it was going to get. Most of the windows looked out into the back of a building. We had a steady stream of mice friends. The heat didn't work, so we walked around in multiple layers of sweatshirts and socks. But the thing is, when facing the prospect of an adult snow day, with no kids, that's important, it doesn't matter how shitty your apartment is. For that day and that day only, your lightless mouse-filled abode becomes your cozy winter cabin. 
your chalet of leisure, where the required attire is oversized hoodies and snowman pajamas. Also, none of us were particularly jazzed about going into our offices. Uh, I was running the customer service hotline at a food magazine, but had no sense of where I wanted to go from there. Lauren was working for a large PR firm, but really wanted to switch to journalism. And Kate was writing about franchises for a business magazine, but growing steadily jaded by the number of dates she was going on with men who just wanted to pitch her their startups. <laughs> we knew technically that we would still have to work from home, even on a snow day, but we reveled in the chance to do the bare minimum while basically just having a, a day-long slumber party. So we sent Kate out the night before to shop for provisions. We asked her for batteries, canned goods, water, produce. Instead, she came back home with an enormous box of Bisquick pancake mix, some packets of sausage, and a few containers of ground meat. In the morning, we fired off a couple work emails and binged Gilmore Girls. I took Kate's phone and started scrolling through her Tinder, sending matches our collective go-to pickup line. Sunsets or thunderstorms? <laughs> we invented a game called Tonight on the News Feed, where we broadcast our Facebook feeds on the television and pretended we were national newscasters delivering updates from our friends and family. Tonight on the news feed, Sahil Jain did the ice bucket challenge with room temperature water. Mike Monty has left his career in finance to become a shaman. Around lunchtime, I opened the fridge, plucked out a bag of sweet potatoes, microwaved them, and set them out on our kitchen table with an assortment of aging condiments I found in the fridge. A jar of Trader Joe's mild salsa, some off-brand sriracha, an old pasta sauce jar of lemon achar that my mom gave me when I moved to New York. I called it a sweet potato bar. The abundance felt somehow luxurious. And I want to note that just a few months ago, Bon Appetit published a very fancy photograph recipe spread for a baked potato bar. So I was definitely ahead of my time. <laughs> Around four, we called it dinner time, and Lauren broke into the Bisquick pancake mix, throwing whatever we had around in the batter frozen bananas, peanut butter, some chopped up vegan protein bars Kate was sent by a food startup. That box of pancake mix was so big, we ended up bringing it to our next apartment. And when I moved in with my boyfriend, I kept it for the memories. By the evening, the snow had let up a little, leaving behind a thick white blanket across the East Village. First Avenue was completely deserted. Just think about the last time you ever saw First Avenue empty. It doesn't happen. Kate and my first instinct was obviously that we should go outside and film a music video to the title song from the movie Frozen, Let It Go. We convinced Lauren to join us. The city was dark and perfectly still. The snow was untouched and, and almost fake looking, like we were on the set of a Netflix Christmas movie. Under the light of the Rite Aid off of Fifth Street, Kate crouched down to film me on her iPhone as I skipped around and sang. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. <laughs> that was the part I was most nervous about. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
the lyrics felt apt. Here we were, three queens in our footprintless kingdom, feeling more confident than I can ever recall being in my life. At a time before I birthed a cookbook and started waking up in the middle of the night, wondering whether the cook time on the caramelized onion doll was correct. Before reading a couple of bad comments on a YouTube video could convince me that I wasn't good enough at my job. Before I let someone into my life romantically and spent the first few years convinced he was gonna break up with me because I was a fraud. I had anxieties back then. Money, hookups, freezing to death because our landlord refused to turn the heat on. But I also didn't have a clear path forward in my life. I was an underdog. Any accomplishment, even if it was just putting out a sweet potato bar, felt like a huge win. I have more direction now, but with that comes pressure to succeed, make change, be the person that people believe me to be. It never stops. I know that our brains tend to sugarcoat the past, but I don't care. During stressful times, I love to let my mind wander back to that day. I close my eyes and I imagine myself bounding down First Avenue, belting out frozen, surrounded by my friends, and feeling like our possibilities were endless. Thank you. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wartsman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Inamine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.